It's Donna Cleveland here, host and producer of Thread the Needle. I just wanted to give you a quick update before we jump into today's show. It's been a while since I've released any new episodes, and as you all know, this year has been far from normal. If you're pretty lucky, it's been a year of canceled plans. But between the pandemic and the tragic killing of more of our Black community, this has been a year of unspeakable loss. After today's show, I'll be releasing a final episode of season one, and in it, I'll be exploring racism in the Midwest. Stay tuned, and without further ado, here's episode six of Thread the Needle. You know how there are certain things that are normal and predictable, and yet they somehow feel surprising when they happen to you? Well, that's how I felt when I found my first gray hair in my 20s. Let me set the scene for you. It was fall, and I was doing some yard work at my dad's business with my family. I think I was carrying a big pile of cardboard boxes out to the curb with my older sister. And I remember her stopping, pointing at my head, and saying gleefully, as sisters do, Oh my god, there's a gray hair on your head! My parents and other sister gathered around to admire the white hair growing in a spiral out of my crown. I'm pretty sure I tried to act nonchalant. But uh, later that day, I ran upstairs to the mirror and flattened my hair into a series of little parts. Sure enough, I'd catch the occasional glint of white, a coarse, wiry reminder of my mortality. At a recent family birthday party, one of my younger cousins announced that she just spotted her first patch of white hairs. My aunt, who's in her 70s, started laughing at us as we compared notes about plucking them out. Oh, I used to do that, she said. But at some point, I wanted to have some hair left on my head. It dawned on me then that, like all of us, I'd have to come to terms with the prospect of getting older sooner or later. You're listening to Thread the Needle, a podcast that explores the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. I'm Donna Cleveland, host and producer of Thread the Needle. I'm 33 years old, and like many of us, I've picked up some pretty negative ideas about aging from our society. In this episode, I'll share two narratives that run contrary to one another about aging. On the one hand, there's society and its very negative messaging about aging, which is especially rough for women. And on the other side is research on aging and well-being, and a surprising trend that turns up in data from countries around the world. The goal will be to get a view inside of what the internal experience of growing old is really like. Before I try to answer this question, I figured we should take a look at what the cultural narrative actually is. If you look at the media, it's not hard to find examples. Take last year, for instance, when I saw a headline announcing that Keanu Reeves had what reporters were calling an age-appropriate girlfriend. When I clicked through to the article, it turned out that his girlfriend, an artist named Alexander Gray, is in her mid-40s while he's in his mid-50s. I'm pretty sure the main reason people were so shocked is because she has white hair. It blew everyone's mind that she wasn't trying to conceal her age. People even started posting on Twitter, joking that he was dating Helen Mirren. 
who, for the record, is in her 70s and is a total babe. In general, women's treatment in Hollywood is pretty dismal as they age. A study of last year's 100 top grossing films found that a record high of 43 of them starred women, which still isn't equitable, by the way, but only three of those movies starred women over the age of 45. If you want a great parody of the situation, just go look up Amy Schumer's skit called Last Fuckable Day. In the scene, Amy stumbles across a bunch of actresses picnicking in a meadow. They quickly explain that they're celebrating Julia Louise Dreyfus's Last Fuckable Day. Sorry, did you see Julia's Last Fuckable Day? Mm-hmm. What is that? Mm. In every actress's life, the media decides when you finally reach the point where you're not believably fuckable anymore. Patricia Arquette chimes in. You know how um, Sally Field was Tom Hanks's love interest in Punchline, and then like 20 minutes later she was his mom in Forrest Gump? Or you might get offered a rom-com with Jack Nicholson where you're competing with another woman to fuck him. For the Punchline, Amy asks Tina Fey when men have their last fuckable day. Many <laughs> men don't have that day. Never. Well, they're fuckable forever. They could be 100 and just like nothing but white spiders coming out, but they're fuckable. <laughs> I wanted to understand this intersection of ageism and sexism, so I called up author and activist Ashton Applewhite, who wrote This Chair Rocks, a manifesto calling for an end to age discrimination. I also called Pat Taub, who's a former journalist and family therapist who founded a blog called Women's Older Wisdom and also teaches classes on women and aging. To get us started, I had Applewhite break down for me why it is that women have it harder than men when it comes to aging. We face the double whammy of ageism and sexism, and implications mount up over time and intersect with race and class, and this is why the poorest of the poor everywhere in the world are old women of color. We are judged more harshly for our appearance. In other words, if you make the hideous mistake of getting wrinkles, you know, it is held against you, And then there's plain old sexism. Women start being promoted at lower rates in their 30s because we might have children. And you know, you can't have a uterus and a brain functioning at the same time. Another piece of this not related to age is that when working women have a baby, their pay goes down. When working men have a baby, their pay goes up. Appleway is the first to admit that aging comes along with certain challenges. Physical and mental decline can and do happen and are difficult to deal with. But feeling that you're no longer worthwhile is not a built-in part of aging, she argues. One of the many irritating things people assume about ageism is that it is somehow natural because we fear dying. Therefore, it's natural and acceptable to distance ourselves from old people because they make us think about dying. In all stereotypes, of course, there is always an element of truth, I think. It's always complicated. We older people are reminders of mortality. That is true. But you are aging from the minute you are born. And dying is a discrete biological event that happens only at the end of all that living. So I think the conflation of aging and dying is a function of living in an ageist world. It is homophobia that makes life harder for gay men. It is not loving a guy. It's not being a woman that makes life harder for women. It is sexism. And it is not the passage of time that makes getting older so much harder than it has to be. It is ageism. 
both Applewhite and Taub said that when they began researching aging, the information they found was disturbingly negative. That led Taub to create her blog to introduce positive information and representation online and in the media. When I Google older women, what I came up with were tips on how to dress younger, how to attract a younger man. It was very superficial. I asked Taub what inspired her to create this safe haven of sorts for women. There's an old saying, we teach what we need to learn. And as I became an older woman in her 60s, and now I'm in my 70s, I knew that I had to find a way to be more comfortable and positive about getting older. There's so much ageism in this culture and so much age shaming of the older woman because our culture is so youth obsessed. You know, it has a sort of notion that when a woman becomes old, she's passe or no longer valid. In the group, Tob helps women work through the different ways they're discriminated against, from their appearance to the value of their minds. Men are revered when they get older. We have the elder statesmen. We don't do a lot in terms of honoring women of wisdom. Of course, men are concerned about their physical change, but I think they don't feel as marginalized or as much of an outcast in this culture. Older men who have made a contribution to society and politics, the arts, whatever, are often called upon as experts when people are thinking about a certain topic related to them. I'm not sure we're so quick to turn to an older woman for her expertise. We have these kind of pejorative images of the older woman, the witch, the hag. I mean, that's still kind of with us. It's still, I think, in people's subconscious. From the time a woman has been a girl and a teen and a young woman, the first thing people see is her appearance. And her outward appearance is how people make a judgment about her. But we're so much more than that. You know, we have inner beauty and inner worth. So it's just, it's just harder for a woman because her currency has been on how she looks. Applewhite went through her own reckoning with aging in her 50s, and that propelled her to write her book, where she made some pretty radical discoveries. Everything I thought I knew about what it would be like to be really old was flat out wrong, way too negative, way off base, or simply not nuanced enough. And I set out to explore why there was this discrepancy between the lived reality all around us, which is that most older people continue to be in the world in all kinds of interesting ways, and this disproportionate sense of dread and fear. Where did that negative narrative come from, and what purposes does it serve? Applewhite pointed out that this fear and dread is easy to monetize, for one. Because no one makes money off self-acceptance and contentment. In her book, she researched industries that target women, like self-help and beauty. Women buy 80% of self-help books. We are barraged with messages that we are not blank enough, right? And if we just worked harder on XYZ on ourselves, uh, everything would be okay, when of course it's not going to be okay until we challenge those broader systems of oppression um, on a mass level. While living a healthy lifestyle and wanting to feel good longer are positive things, Applewhite says the anti-aging industry has a different mission altogether. Here's something to keep in mind about aging, that it is not just something annoying that old people and your parents and celebrities do. It is a process on which we embark the day we are born. Aging is living, and living is aging. So think about that when you think about what anti-aging products promise or, you know, products that will keep you young forever, whatever. 
aging is not the enemy. Ageism is the enemy, not the process of moving through life, which is beautiful and fascinating and incredibly enriching in countless ways. Instead of focusing on the positives that come with age, Applewhite says the anti-aging industry sends women into a losing battle. You can't stop aging. So buying into this anti-aging ideology sets us up to fail. It pits us against each other because, you know, when, when someone says you look good for your age, it might be hard not to be complimented, but it reinforces this notion that to age is to fail and huge class bias. These anti-aging remedies, remedies in quotes, are expensive. They're costly. The anti-aging piece of the skincare industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Nothing works. I mean, sunscreen is the only actual anti-wrinkle um, product that works. And we women make less money, yet we spend far more on these products. So it's another way that we're economically disadvantaged. So again, zoom out. The problem is not that you somehow, oh my God, how did you allow this to happen, got wrinkles. The problem is that we live in a society that discriminates against us on that basis. You know, Frances McDormand has a beautiful line about how the wrinkle between her nose and the corner of the mouth on one, on one side of her face is dedicated to her son for every time she, you know, howled in, in delight and glee or terror at something he had done or said. And, you know, if you think of wrinkles as the map of our lives, we think antique furniture is beautiful. We think antique china is beautiful. We think a flower that has exploded is beautiful. Those are subjective choices. We can choose where we see beauty. Applewhite has taken some flack over the years for calling on women to stop doing things like lie about their age, dye their hair, or buy expensive anti-aging products. She's backpedaled on some of these statements, but she still believes older women will become more powerful when they're more visible. When we lie about our age, or leave early accomplishments off our resumes, or dye our hair just to cover the gray, we give a pass to the discrimination that makes those behaviors necessary. And that is a problem. However, we each need to do these things, you know, in our own way and at our own time. So I never want to say, you know, what another person, let alone women who are filled with shoulds and how we should behave from the day we're born. You know, are we, are we pretty enough, thin enough, feminine enough, too aggressive, too loud, too this, too that. If you like dyeing your hair, more power to you. If you dye your hair purple, keep dyeing it purple or try green, whatever. Uh, if you feel that you will not be able to move in the world in the way in which you want to, if you have gray hair, dye your hair. But until we allow ourselves to go gray and stop lying about our age and so on, the world will not see how many of us there are, how powerful we are, how gorgeous we are, how skilled we are, et cetera, et cetera. This is a lot of doom and gloom. And this is the part that's not surprising. We're used to our conversations around aging being pretty depressing. But here's the part that may surprise you. Applewhite and Tob have found that despite a sexist and ageist culture, as they age, their life satisfaction has actually continued to grow. Here's what Applewhite has to say about it. One way women put it is, I, I give fewer fucks. You know, we are liberated from the prison of the male gaze, from certain strictures. Now, I think there are ways we can and need to push back against that representation of old age for women. 
But for many women, it is the best time of life. It is a time of power and freedom. I find myself more confident. I know myself better. And I feel full of a power and self-knowledge that was completely inaccessible to me when I was younger. Pat Taub has had a similar experience. I worry far less about what other people think of me. Andy Lamott said, what I like about aging is, I finally came home to me. It's like all the parts fit together. And I feel that way too. There's this kind of solidity. I'm not warring with myself. I mean, I have to deal with the culture. But I'm in my own skin now, and that feels good. Maybe it takes us this long to sort of become the people we are. And it's rather wonderful when that happens. I was talking to a friend of mine, and I was saying, there's all this emphasis on how we lose our cognitive abilities as we get older. And I forget things, but I said, in some way, my mind feels sharper. And she said, what do you mean? I said, it almost feels like all the anxieties and tensions I had when I was younger, my insecurities, they're not with me. This is what led me to my next big discovery, that people tend to be happiest later in life. We'll have more on that right after a quick break. Are you exhausted from trying to do everything perfectly? Do you hold yourself back because you're scared of failure? Well, that's why I want to tell you about another podcast you should be tuning into. You can break away from the cult of perfection by subscribing and listening to the award-winning Brave Not Perfect podcast. It's hosted by Reshma Sijani. She's the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code and author of the international bestseller Brave Not Perfect. Her TED Talk about teaching girls bravery instead of perfection has over 5 million views. Join Reshma as she shares her secrets about bravery and success because she wants to help you fear less, fail more, and live bolder. She'll even answer your questions and give you tips about how to get a little braver every day. Plus, she has revealing conversations with other changemakers about their complex journeys and what we can take away from them to improve our own lives. If you're enjoying Thread the Needle, I have a feeling you're going to love Brave Not Perfect with Reshma Sujani. You can tune in and subscribe to Brave Not Perfect wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, back to Thread the Needle. So experiencing happiness in old age, it turns out, is not just anecdotal, but is a universal trend. I learned this from Jonathan Rausch. He's a journalist who spent years studying the relationship of happiness and age for his book, The Happiness Curve. Rausch is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and is a contributing writer for The Atlantic. He took interest in this topic after going through a period of discontent in midlife. I was mystified by my own dissatisfaction. Rausch was in a happy relationship. He'd achieved career success as a journalist. And yet he couldn't shake a sense of chronic disappointment and a voice inside that kept telling him he was a failure. The fact that nothing was actually going wrong just gave him a sense of shame. Why did he feel unhappy despite all of the many things he had to be grateful for? And so he kept quiet. That was until one day a colleague of his at the Brookings Institute told him about some research that was going to change everything. I learned about this cutting edge research that was finding 
a natural tendency for life satisfaction to decline in midlife. And that set me off on a journey of discovering that there's an independent relationship between life satisfaction and age. And it's actually the opposite of what most people think it should be or think it is. Hearing about this research sent Rausch off on a mission to understand this relationship. And it's what eventually led him to write his book. Early on in his research, Rausch had to define what he meant by happiness. After all, the emotion is very subjective, and it comes in many shades and flavors. For the sake of measurement, he narrowed it down to two kinds. One is called hedonic satisfaction, and that's basically your mood. Are you cheerful? Are you sad? And you would find out about that by asking people questions like, how often did you smile today? How stressed and worried do you feel? The other kind is the kind that interests me, and it's uh, called evaluative happiness. And that's how satisfied are you with your life as a whole? And that has much more to do with your personal fulfillment. This sense of well-being is what Rausch was lacking in his middle years. Early on, Rausch wondered if what he was experiencing was a midlife crisis. He wasn't about to go out and buy a red sports car, though, or have an affair. The symptoms didn't really match. When Rausch started researching... I was surprised to find that the idea of midlife crisis is as recent as 1965. It was coined by a Freudian psychiatrist named Elliot Jakes, and he claimed that at midlife, people suddenly have to grapple with the onset of death and that this kicks up a kind of crisis. What Jakes got right is that something happens in midlife. What he got wrong is that it's not a crisis. In fact, it's the opposite of a crisis. It's a normal, natural, and usually healthy transition. We're very ambitious when we're young, and we think that achieving all our goals will make us super satisfied, you know, status and material things. Well, we're wrong about that. Ambition just keeps moving the goalposts. So, by about our 40s, we start to feel like, well, I've accomplished all this stuff and I'm still not satisfied. And that leads to disappointment and pessimism, and that's what I felt. But other things are also going on. Our values start to change as we get older. As, as lifespan gets shorter, we start to question, maybe I don't need to worry so much about you know the house or the car or the status. Maybe I should be thinking more about the people and relationships and pursuits that matter most. And that turns out, is very good for happiness, but it's a gradual transition. Even though we've debunked the midlife crisis, the stereotypes around middle age haven't gone away, and we have even more negative stereotypes around old age. And here, Rausch again found that our ideas don't reflect reality. Starting in the 90s, economists David Blanchflower and Andrew Oswald began studying human happiness. Starting in the 70s and then on into the 90s, pollsters, Gallup, for example, begin to accumulate these huge databases of questions about life satisfaction, which they're asking all over the world. And, you know, people like economists love big data sets. So they start mining all this stuff to try to figure out is there a relationship between, say, wealth and happiness. And so they plow through this data and they apply a lot of statistical analysis the way they do. And they want to see what matters to happiness. Well, education, employment, marriage, children, health, income, all of those things. And then because they're statisticians, they can correct for all of those things. They can just take all of that stuff out of the equation using statistical regressions. And they did that. And then this weird thing shows up, which is even after you remove the effects of all these other important variables, there's still this pattern of happiness 
decreasing until about age 47, and then increasing after that. Well, at first, you know, they're economists, right? They're not psychologists. They don't know what to make of that. So they just throw that result away. But it keeps coming up again and again. And by the early 2000s, it begins to dawn on people, hey, wait a minute, we should look at this. There does seem to be an independent effect of the aging process on happiness, and it's U-shaped. So starting in the 2000s, people really begin to dive in. And in 2008, the first big article was published saying we can really confirm this pattern with lots of countries. And that's how it was discovered by, by economists. Let's pause and go over what we've learned so far. Contrary to popular belief, happiness over time is not a downward slope to death. Analysis of data collected from around the world on life satisfaction and age has found a U-shaped curve of happiness over the course of the human lifespan. Number two, our peak year of misery is 47. So sorry any 47-year-olds listening. It'll get better soon. Number three, we become happier after 50, with our happiness levels reaching all-time highs in our 70s and early 80s, actually surpassing levels in our 20s and 30s. Number four, even when controlling for things like education, employment, marriage, children, health, and income, the happiness curve still showed up. When Rausch was slogging his way through midlife, what made it harder was the fact that he was convinced his feelings of unhappiness would only get worse with time. I thought what everyone thinks, because it's ubiquitous in the culture, that aging is a process of decline and despair and depression and relinquishment of all the things we care about, and then death. All of these things are completely wrong. They're just backwards. But I believed all that because everyone believed all that. I was very startled to find when I did my research, the most robustly supported element of this entire literature on happiness and age found over many years in study after study is that people get happier as they get older after midlife. The U-curve of happiness is undeniable. In fact, it's so universal that even shows up in monkeys. Andrew Oswald, who's an economist at University of Warwick, kind of on a lark, gets in touch with primatologists and says, can I see this data? And sure enough, the U-curve pops right out. The U-shaped curve is both biological and cultural. We know it's biological to some extent because it appears in so many places and even in other species. But we also know it's cultural because the shape and level of this U-shaped curve, how happy people are, how steeply they decline as they go into middle age on average, and where the turning point is especially. All of those vary between cultures and countries to some extent. Basically, we can't positive think our way out of experiencing the slump. But... How a culture thinks about aging does matter. It's also important to remember that there are a lot of factors that affect a person's happiness. So there will be plenty of people's lives that don't follow this specific trajectory. Someone with a traumatic childhood, for instance, may experience life as only getting better and better as they get older. Or someone who happily remarries in their 40s may find that the happiest time of their life is in the middle years. Nevertheless, Age is a factor, and you can see it in the fact that our brains change over time. We actually get less emotionally volatile. We get better at coping with stress. We react more to positive stimuli relative to negative stimuli. We even are less likely to get depressed as we get older. 
Alan Castell is a professor of cognitive psychology at UCLA, and he studies memory, learning, and aging, and he's uncovered an interesting finding. We become more selective about what we remember as we age. Or another way of putting that is, we get good at tuning most things out. I was a graduate student, and we were testing older adults' memory, and we've used things like trivia questions and to examine how curiosity might influence memory. So if I gave you a question that you were very curious to learn the answer, so if I said, what was the country to first give women the the right to vote? And we found that if you were curious to learn the answer to the question, you were more likely to remember that information a week later compared to other questions like, what was the first product to have a barcode? And so, you know, the answer is Wrigley's chewing gum. And so when we test people a week later, if that's not interesting to you, you'll quickly forget it. But the, the first one, the first country to give women the right to vote was, in fact, New Zealand. And people are sometimes surprised to hear that. But if that's something you're interested in and curious about, you'll remember that for a much longer period of time. And that, that's especially the case for older adults. We didn't find that relationship for younger adults. According to Castell, a lot of studies of memory miss the point. A lot of this research is motivated on prior work that shows, you know, for the last 30 years, 40 years, that older adults get slower, have memory impairments, and all of these findings are, you know, certainly relevant and, and true, but they don't test memory in the context that it's used in the real world. And I think my research is unique in that we found that older adults, and as we get older, we become more selective. It's not that we don't care about the rest. Sometimes that might be the case. But we know that if we can't remember everything, we certainly want to focus on the most important thing. My mom recently turned 70, and when she talks about getting older, she'll say funny things like, who's that, when she looks in the mirror, or talk about back when she was young and gorgeous, which, by the way, mom, you still are. Overall, I can tell my mom's comfortable with who she is. And one thing I've heard her focus on when talking about getting older is that you gain wisdom. I've heard people say before, age is inevitable, wisdom is optional. Rausch said we actually can increase our well-being throughout life by increasing our wisdom. Wisdom is a real thing. It's, it's actually been scientifically defined. It can be measured. It can be inculcated. There are studies on how to get people to be wiser. It's been determined that wisdom is not just the sum of intelligence, experience, skill. It's its own thing, actually. It's tremendously valuable to individuals and society. So if you're asking, can you ensure that someone gets wise as they age? The answer is no. Can you help yourself get wiser? The answer is yes. Focus more on others. Keep things in perspective. Reach out. Do mentoring. And focus on the most important things in life. Wisdom is good for aging. And so, Applewhite discovered, is having a generally positive attitude. People with more realistic attitudes towards aging, right, which means more positive, are less likely to develop Alzheimer's, even if they have the gene that predisposes them to the disease. Pat Taub's whole mission with her blog is to cultivate wisdom and a positive attitude about aging in older women. Part of this positivity is about helping women shift their attention away from focusing on what they've lost. I think there is this tendency for a lot of older women to what I call romancing the past. They're saying, oh, things were so much better when I was younger, I was happier, I was pretty, I was married, blah, blah. But when we do that, we we often overlook the struggles that were inherent there. A personal fear that I have about old age is the thought of reaching the end of my life 
and being filled with regrets. She didn't tell me that I wouldn't have regrets if I lived the right way, which is what a lot of people say. Instead, she said this. Regrets are a part of life. You know, it's going to happen because none of us are perfect. You'd have to stay in a closet your whole life to not have regrets. Well, then you might regret not having smelled fresh air and seeing the sunrise and all of that. And also at the same time, when we get into regret mode, then we're negative about ourselves. You know, what a jerk I was to have done this or that. Then balance that out by recognizing all the positive things you did or look at them as teachers. What can they teach me about my life? Tob's very proactive about having a positive experience of aging. She has made a pact to surround herself with positive people. She's volunteering in hospice care to come to peace with the end-of-life process. And she's still working toward her dreams, including writing her own play. Hopefully, I will keep dreaming until my last breath. We can continue to dream and contribute. And I think it's really important to be able to laugh at ourselves, to not take ourselves so seriously, to have fun. I mean, play and whimsy never goes away. I also think we have a responsibility as elders to be part of social change in whatever way we can to make a contribution because we do have this wisdom that's accumulated. It's the wisdom years. And, you know, instead of years of tearing our hair out, oh, my God, why do I look like this? You know, my body is changing and so on. But the wisdom is really a precious gift. Going into this episode, I wondered if I'd come out of it more or less afraid of getting older. Now, I'd say it's made me less afraid, but only by a small degree, if I'm being honest. That's because there's no really knowing what it feels like to be at a different stage of life until you're there. It's interesting and worthwhile to learn about, but I just don't think it's the same as having it be your own lived experience. For example, in my 20s, I was scared shitless of turning 30. It felt sort of like I was walking off some sort of cliff, and even though I talked to people who were in their 30s, It took having the experience for myself to really get it. Mainly, though, it's made me want some of that steadiness that I've learned comes with time. I feel like most of the time, if you could hear my inner dialogue, you'd think I was a bit of a mess. My friends do hear it, and thank you for still being my friends. In the meantime, I'll take some comfort in knowing that later in life, I can look forward to feeling more centered. I also now see women feeling good about themselves and being vocal about it, at any time in life, but especially in older age, as a political act. Thriving as a woman starts to shift and change the negative stories we've been fed our whole lives. Simultaneously, studying the happiness curve has left me feeling a bit like I'm strapped into my seat on a roller coaster ride that's about to take off whether or not I'm ready. The ups and downs are just part of the ride, whether or not I try to have a good attitude about it. And that, I suppose, is called the human condition. Thank you for listening to Thread the Needle a podcast that explores the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. I'm Donna Cleveland, the host and producer of this show. The theme song of Thread the Needle is by Mira Oberdyke. Original music is by Taylor Ross and episode artwork is by Chosie Titus. Thank you to Molly Bloom of American Public Media for being my mentor. 
If you have feedback or a story you'd like to see featured in a future episode, please email me at podcast at the needle.co. I'll be back next month with the last episode of season one on racism in the Midwest. Is there a little bug? Yeah, the bug water. Yeah, the bug is floating on the water, isn't it? This is me creek stomping with my niece and nephew at Kiyosakwa State Park over this summer, which is about a 20-minute drive from the little Iowa town where I grew up. My niece and nephew are biracial, and my sister and her husband have been doing some soul-searching and talking to each other about where they can raise their children, where they know they will be safe. And they've been coming up blank. In the Midwest, even though people pride themselves on being nice, in this episode, I'll explore why white people think the Midwest is not a racist place and why black Midwesterners know that it is. We'll also talk about where we can go from here. There's another show I'd like to tell you about as well. Do mediums really see dead people? Can our solar system determine a person's luck? Can Satanism be feminist? On Beyond Belief, a new podcast from Wonder Media Network, host Jericho Mandibar offers spiritually conscious listeners a safe space to question and to consider the ideas, theories, and practices of some of the world's leading non-traditional spiritual thinkers. Jericho takes listeners on a journey to learn how society's weirdos believe. And we discover maybe they're not so weird after all featuring topics like satanic feminism and dolphin communication, Beyond Belief gives listeners an opportunity to suspend skepticism and embrace the spiritual. Listen to Beyond Belief on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.